Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhardt. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. Also, we have a Patreon page if you want to support us as we continue telling these important stories. You can find that at patreon.com and search adoption colon the making of me. Again, that's patreon.com search adoption colon the making of me. And please remember to subscribe, share and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Good morning, Sarah. Hi, Louise. Nice to see you again in our closets. As always, we're back in the closets. (laughs) Back in the closets. I'm sort of half in and half out of my closet today. Before we start, I wanted to give a little bit of a correction on my story. I spoke to a biological relative yesterday, and just for the record, they didn't illegally find me, (laughs) pay off somebody. That was actually a story along the way that I misremembered or turned around when I had the verbal facts given to me. So it was through a court-appointed situation, which was interesting because Colorado has a hundred year lock on records, which you and I both know is atrocious that people can't open their own birth records for a hundred years. Yeah. So they could petition. My biological grandmother was very ill with Parkinson's and they could petition the courts for her to be able to meet me before she died. If there's a living biological grandparent, because the biological mother had passed away. And so that's how they ended up finally getting my information. But I just wanted to give that little disclaimer so nobody thinks that someone's out there being hoodlums, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're from a criminal past. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, more than we glad know. You, I'm glad you uh, wrapped that up. And I'm really glad you talked to her. Yeah, me too. It was a nice conversation in general. Just a lot of interesting tidbits you pull from these. Like we ended up chatting about all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So, What are we on to today? Okay, so today we are on chapter 10, the new family. And this is all about when the adopted child goes into a family and kind of how to manage those dynamics and all that stuff. So uh, we're on to the, just to remind everyone, we're on to part three, the healing, which is the section three of uh, Nancy Verrier's book. The primal right, wound. of course, the primal wound. As, as we're here on YouTube, I'm showing it, but viewers don't know. Viewers listeners. should be tuned in. Listeners should be tuning into our YouTube. It's very exciting. So I thought it was bringing the baby home was interesting because I doubt that anybody did this in our era, told people what to do when they bring the baby home. Here she's giving real things you should be doing to avoid a bigger schism for the baby, right? Yes. Like eye contact. I mean, of course, most people are holding their babies when they feed them and eye contact, but skin to skin and smell and touch and all of that so that the baby's feeling a new bond with somebody's mm-hmm. skin. And I don't know what went on in the 60s when I was born. I don't, I don't I know. Do, I do. I know my mom did all this. I think just mm-hmm. even instinctually, I think she, she, I know for the first like, X amount of years of my life, I had that, but I, you know, she and I were close and, and my dad and yes, you know, this little family. So I feel like instinctively she did all that. I think my mom too. And, and you and I are pretty, we're pretty loving people. We have that in like, we're not, there's not a huge split with that. So I think we had really loving moms in that way, but I like that. Um, there was one thing that the whole part about, about cuddling, 
This was interesting. She said, "For did you underline that? For the, babies who do not respond to cuddling? Yes, 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 it, yes. It is essential to find ways to touch them in a loving way that is non-threatening. My mom did used to tell me, and I have talked about that in my story, that I was a huge squirmer, a huge enough. Once I had words, I'd say enough and tell everybody enough. As soon as they hugged me and I had dimples and they would touch my face and I'd say enough and this whole thing. She said, even as a baby, I would do that pull back. And I learned how to self-soothe and rock myself, but she found other ways like patting my back and rhythmic things. And she said, I did have that. And she knew that was probably from my adoption because of things she had read. I thought that was interesting that she brought that up here. Yeah. That's, that's what I was going to, and also the, you know, how to hand the parents and babies of toddlers adopted at birth or later will, will want to be alert to the unexplained sadness or crying you know, which might be expressions of the child's loss. Yeah. So many adopted moms probably aren't equipped with all of this at the beginning, knowing. And we've had conversations with adopted moms that aren't on the podcast where there's a lot of stuff going on that they can't heal. Mm-hmm. And, and at least like now they're aware of it. I mean, ba- again, back when we were adopted, I don't, there wasn't that awareness, you know. I, it, no. To me, it's still such a crazy concept to think you just, there's a baby come get it and then like the baby is given to these strangers in essence it's so it's such a you know just now that we're into doing i haven't really thought about any of this until we started doing this podcast and talking to other adoptees and the whole community just like i think about it a lot now yes just how i mean i was just picturing like if if they just took Becker away from me at birth and handed him to another couple in the hospital <laughs> and off he went, like how weird that would be for him, so for me. And weird. I, I watched that movie again that you and uh, Rebecca Autumn brought up the three identical strangers. Oh man. My husband had never seen it and not to get into that movie, but if you haven't seen it, you should see it. Everybody listening to this, but the whole, like how they just put them in these families. And one of the fathers was like, Oh, we just went along. Like there was no, <laughs> there was no, yeah you know, you just went along, you just joined the family and off you went and there was no consideration of anything. And one boy really didn't fit in. And they were like, yeah, that's just him. You know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's a different time. And it's, uh, you know, so she also gets into the whole thing about it's a lifelong process and conveying love, which I thought was really nice. Like always conveying love and accepting what they say. Like if an adoptee says, you know, I'm really hurting. Or even if they're too young to say, you could say, I know you're missing your mom, like acknowledging the actual loss of the primal mother, which I know would be really hard as an adopted mom to talk about that. But she said it actually really helps the child long-term. Yes. And, and you know, and I think it just, if someone is adopting, of course we're all human, but if someone is adopting from that pure place of wanting to, raise a person, raise a child, not just do it out of some empty hole inside them, then the ego, I think, is naturally taken away. And and it can really that it could, you know, take that away from your ego. And yeah, and you don't make it anymore about you. You can handle like moms, even not adopted. Our children are not adopted. And we handle a lot of blows for our kids. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> you can handle a lot of painful things said to you and a lot of blows on behalf of your children. So it's like the betterment of the child is always the, uh, you know, gosh, I mean, I'm hoping with all these new conversations we're having and people are having that 
that this is going to start a new process in the adoption world with just the conversations. It's such a strange thing that it's still not that talked about. I know. And not, not having, we talked about this in our Facebook live, you know, not having counseling prior or, you know, sure these, there are adoptions that are open and it's, but that has its own set of problems. And so there, you know, there just, there needs to be a vital piece added, which is counseling, communication, all of it, all of it. And then telling your children about adoption, you know, which of course your mom, your parents did. So did mine. I, yes. I knew it was kind of not very tangible, you know, it wasn't. Well, she talked about that, how like I, our parents did the right thing and say, I always knew I was adopted and you always mm-hmm. knew you were adopted. And I'm glad for that because that would have been really weird to find out later how people do. But they, like she said, their concept is very weird for a young child because they may think, oh, everybody's adopted or, you know, so you have to kind of in the stages that are correct for their age, keep updating what that is. Yes. And I'm not sure I really ever got that. I don't think I did Maybe either. Middle school. I think middle school, my mom and I started to talk a little bit about it. I'm like, what? Like, all of a sudden I'm like, what happened? How am I here? You know, like, but I, I don't think. That's another thing. She really gets into if you actually take proper classes or counseling, you can kind of learn these just like we would for anything else, a child that's going through anything else now. Yeah. But for some reason, this is sort of taboo still. I don't remember having any, of course, my life after seven years old was just pretty much chaos. You know what I mean? It was so there, there wasn't, there wouldn't have been any, I don't know, like, no, there wasn't any conversation after that. It was just pure survival kind of. Yeah. On all of our parts. This is what it started talking about the adolescence and acting oh, out. Yes. Where where was that? The t- talking, just being being upfront and talking like the separation anxiety. Children who have already experienced the loss of their birth mother will find it difficult to be separated from their adoptive mothers. I have a clear memory of going to kindergarten, you know, and sobbing and oh. <laughs> you know, just sobbing, 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 and you know, every day for. I picture like little Sarah. (laughs) Yeah. And I couldn't sleep. We had these, those red and blue mats that are, I don't know if you had those and you had nap time and I couldn't sleep. I pop my head up and cry and she'd put your head down, you know, (laughs) you were at a Lutheran school. It was very like, no, I actually not for kindergarten. I I didn't start the Lutheran school till first grade. Uh, It was a public school. It was a public kindergarten. I I remember the big nap mats and uh, all sorts of things. And, yeah, I, I I had a hard time too. Now that you say that, I I was always very clingy. I didn't want my mom to leave the room. She started doing the room mom thing, and I would cling to her leg. Yeah, <laughs> I Which had a, a lot of kids have. But I um, when Becker was at a Montessori school, and we lived in Austin. I volunteered there, and so and I would be in with all the little kids for nap time, and you know Aww. there were a lot that that would want to come cuddle and. Uh, Chris Becker hated that. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's like our dogs now. I'm not, yeah. <laughs> Kids are a lot like dogs, let's yeah. be honest. <laughs> well, and I I think one thing she sums up is she goes through a lot of things that we won't get into here because this is a long chapter on yeah, it's really long. tools, the tools for parents, like through dance and through art and all these things that we're not, you know, if if you're oh adopting. wait, I did find one oh, thing. Yeah. I found yeah. one thing. 
it was under limits during adolescence. Oh, and, yeah. You know, parents should be understanding, but must set definite limits for behavior. At the age when peer pressure is at its peak, the pressure to experiment with drugs, alcohol, and sex becomes overwhelming, compounded by the feeling held by many adoptees that they belong with the lo- losers and stoners of life. The problems become magnified. Yes. Now I would say that the stoners aren't necessarily the losers, but no, no, no. <laughs> That's a different, written in a different era. But yes, I always was drawn to that. Always. Even in the family I'm from, with all the good stuff I had, I was always drawn to where to get in trouble. My most, I was going to talk about this before, and I think I talked about it with you, but I used to go to a summer camp every year for sailing. And I lived back east with my aunt and uncle, and I chose to do this. Loved it. It was in Maryland. And I went through a lot of my stuff there because it was summers and we were kind of left to ourselves and partying and, you know, we'd sail and promiscuous stuff, but I was really lost. Like I look back on those years and it's like some of it's cringe. I know. Oh, believe me. Yeah. But at the same time, I look back kind of trying to be gentle on myself. Like I was just lost. Like I was Mm -hmm. trying to figure out who I was and I really was going through all these things in here and not knowing it was from being adopted and I remember thinking, why do I always feel so not part of a family or a group? Or a- Yeah. I felt it. And I was thinking a lot about it while we read this book. And it's like, God, and I don't know, the best situations, the kids still have this. So, I mean, it's still in there. Even if you're squashing it a little, you're feeling it, you know? Yeah. So I, I'm glad I you mean, brought it up. I think the overall, you know, arching theme of this chapter is just, I mean, if I had to boil it down to one word that's important is communication. I mean, 100% tolerance and, you know, getting your ego out of it and just understanding that what a loss it is for the child and not taking that personally and just doing the best to do the best for the child. I agree. And she has some cardinal rules at the end that are about communication, all five of them, never threaten abandonment, which I don't know who would do that, but I'm sure there's some people who would acknowledge your child's feelings, allow your child to be him or herself. Do not try to take the place of the birth mother. Mm -hmm. Just be the mother that you are and you cannot take away your child's pain. And that's what she talked about herself with her story, with her daughter is she's a therapist and she felt inept to take away her child's pain. Like, I know all this stuff and I can't take away my child's pain. Yeah. And I think that's, those are conversations my mom and I were starting to have before she passed away where we could get deep about this stuff. And I wish now she was here so we could have the conversations you and your mom are having. Yes. My mom's been a big support of this podcast. And uh, hi, mom. (laughs) And it's brave of her, I think, to. So brave. Barbara, shout out. Yeah. Is very brave. <laughs> yes. This whole journey is brave, right? <laughs> yes, it is. Well, we have an amazing talk about brave. We have a great guest coming up. Yes. You guys are going to like him. It's a it's lot. A, it's great. We're excited. We're excited. Okay. Talk okay. to you then. Talk to you then. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Louise and I had talked about it for months, and we were intimidated until we heard about Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is hands down the best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple, Spotify, Google, and more. 
podcasting isn't hard. Believe me, if Louise and I could figure it out, anyone can. We got a mic, some headphones, parked ourselves in our closets, and that was it. Buzzsprout did the rest. You get a great looking podcast website and you can track all of your analytics to see how your podcast is doing. So if you follow the link in our show notes, it lets Buzzsprout know we sent you and you get a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan. And bonus, you help support our show. So before we get started on our episode today, we just want to give a shout out to our Patreons. We are so grateful to you guys for supporting us and giving us all the love. And here they are. We have seven, Sarah. We have Laura Christensen, good friend of Sarah's. Thanks, Laura. A special friend to the show that I'm not allowed to mention who we just adore. (laughs) Linda Pivak. Thank you, Linda. Blonde Records. I wonder who Blonde Records is. We need to investigate that. Yes. Ramona Evans, my dear friend growing up. Ron Schneider, friend of Sarah and I both. And John Fry. He's our past guest and friend of the show. Thanks, Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thank you. So here we are. I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. We found him because he is a fellow podcaster about, and he has a podcast called Who Am I Really? And it's about adoption. And when we started our podcast, we kind of looked around and there weren't that many. And you were really the only one I could find that was about adoptees and and their whole life. So we listened to it and, and then we got in touch and he was happy to come on the podcast. It was really exciting. So... I'm introducing Damon Davis of the podcast, Who Am I Really? Thank you so much for having me. Go ahead. (laughs) Well, so we would just want to ask you, how did you get into your podcast and are you adopted? What's your story? Why don't you start with your podcast and go from there? Certainly. Yeah. Let Let me give you a little bit of background on the podcast. So again, the title is Who Am I Really? And that was sort of a fundamental question I asked myself as an adoptee. I was going through sort of this identification with my son who had just been born and realizing he was my first biological relative. And it really put me in a place of thinking about my adoptive family that I had grown up in and my biological family that was out there somewhere whom I had never known. And so that question sort of really came into my mind. Who am I really? I am an adoptee and I am of this other family. And I needed to sort of reconcile the two things. And and I went on this fascinating journey of self-discovery and sort of trying to find these biological family members while also trying to manage the relationships in my adoptive family. And as I was telling my story to other people, I would sometimes get, oh, I'm adopted too. But my story doesn't go like that. My story is I'll never get my records because I was born in New York. Or I've never really thought about searching for my family. I'm scared to. Or I found some piece of my biological family, but unfortunately, things didn't go very well. And there was some form of rejection or honeymoon that turned into, for lack of better words, divorce. Um, just the, the, uh, the ups and downs of adoption, search, and reunion. And it was then that it occurred to me that there are so many people out there, like myself, adopted, but who have questions with stories to tell, and they're all so drastically different. You know, I often say that if you took me, this 
kid who grew up in a middle-aged homogenous black family in Columbia, Maryland. And you transplanted me to a interracial, you know, transracial adoption in the Midwest in a predominantly white society, I might be a much different person. Mm-hmm. And and the same is true for an Asian adoptee who comes to America and is in a, a white family. Or I, I had a guest on my show who was a white woman who was adopted into a Latino family. You take the same person and everything that comes with their DNA, because we've all sort of had the nature nurture discussion in, in reunion, you find so many people find all of these amazing ways that they are very similar to their biological family. If you take that same person and you put them in a different adoptive family, the whole story changes. And so it was with that realization that I realized there were so many adoptee stories that needed to be told and they needed to be told by the adoptee. I didn't want Mm -hmm. to tell their story for them. I wanted to invite them to open up about their own feelings, their own experiences, their methodology for searching, what the triggers were for why they even decided to search in the first place. And how did it all go? How did it go in your adoptive family with the sort of sharing the fact that you are going to search? How did it go with your adopted family when you actually found somebody and you now have a relationship that could sometimes be viewed as being in competition with your adoptive family? There's just, you know, so many nuances to what an adoption experience can be from beginning to end in terms of reunion and and how a person's life unfolds, how they deal with things that I really wanted to start the podcast. Who am I really to bring out these stories to allow people to open up and share the reality of adoption. You'll often hear folks say things like we need to change the narrative. We need to change Mm -hmm. how adoption is viewed. And this is my attempt to try to assist in that endeavor in that, you know, there's the classic sort of Annie rags to riches, you know, rescue adoption story. And it takes many different forms, cross-culturally, internationally, things along those lines, but they don't always work out awesomely. There are people who were adopted from international borders and they are abused in the homes that they are brought into in the United States. That's not to say that there are not some amazing adoptions. And I was very fortunate to have one. And there are many stories out there of people who just They don't know what their life would be without the parents that they grew up with. And I think it's important to continue to allow those people to have their space. We don't want to tear down necessarily the entirety of what adoption is perceived to be because part of it is founded in some really beautiful things. And there are some people out there, self-included, who have it in their heart to try to offer a child a new place to go and a new opportunity in life. And, and I, I did it for an altruistic vision. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. So I just, I don't want to say, let's change the narrative and say that in, in a way that is perceived as let's tear the whole thing down and burn it. Because let's, let's face it, no matter what, there's going to be a child today mm-hmm. and tomorrow that's going to need an alternative home than the one they were born into. And somebody's got to be there to support them. And the system, quote unquote, is not awesome at doing it. We people who are a village who can raise our children need to put ourselves in a position to do that. So we fool ourselves if we think that adoption is just going to go away. It's not. We do have to put in some measures that are going to allow it to be better for future generations. So 
that's kind of the background for uh-huh. the podcast is me getting voices out there, getting opinions out there, getting perspectives out there. I'll just say one final thing in closing. You know, I've had a couple of birth mothers reach out to me and they've wanted to share their stories as well. And I was reluctant at first because I'm an adoptee. So I'm coming from my perspective. And I didn't necessarily think that it was my place to support that narrative. And I wasn't, it's not that I was against it. I just didn't come from it. I, as a man, cannot give birth to a child. I therefore cannot relinquish a child into adoption. So I didn't think that it was necessarily my place to start to cultivate that set of stories. But what I realized is they are part of the story. There mm-hmm. would not be adoptees would it, were it not for the birth mothers. Triad, and I wanted to yeah. hear. I wanted to hear my own birth mother story. I want to hear other birth mother stories. And if they wanted to come forward and they trusted me to share their journey, then I should let that happen. And so I've had a couple of birth mothers on the on the podcast too. And funny thing, as an outcropping of that sort of piece of my project, a new birth mother's podcast called Birth Moms Real Talk has been started by a woman named D. Yvonne Rivers. Mm, and okay. she is inviting birth mothers to step forward and share their own stories. And so I just wanted to sort of capture pieces of the universe that is adoption. We often talk about it from a triad perspective, but there are just so many components. And I think that a lot of people have a lot of, you know, opinions and stories to offer that can help color in around the edges of what adoption really means. Yep. That's what kind of was our thinking about it too. Also, you know, everyone in the family is a, is affected by the adoption. So mm-hmm. if if there's biological mm-hmm. siblings, they are affected by the by an adoption. If an adopted person has a child, they probably have their if they haven't done the work, then those kids probably have some residual stuff from the adopted person and then their mm-hmm. abandonment. So there it's it is really multifaceted and layered and complicated. It's very complicated. And you touched on so many things that we have going on in our podcast because we're trying to do anybody affected in the realm of adoption, their stories. And you also touched on things with the family, like, you know, you're brought into a great family or you're not, but the adoption is going to continue. So it really is a village. I feel like that this for Sarah and I has really become a village. Like how can we help tell other people's stories or help people that haven't ever talked about? We've had people write us who have said, I've never, I'm listening to you and I've never talked about with anybody. And I finally get to hear about this. Yeah. It's amazing. And I'm so glad you guys are doing this. This is such important work. And there's too many adopt. I swear, I wish I could tell everybody's story, but I I just can't. (laughs) So I'm so thankful that you guys are doing it too, because other people who might not trust me with their story are going to trust you or someone else. And I think it's incredibly valuable to have lots of people supporting the storytelling journey. But you're right. There are Mm -hmm. adoptees out there that are sitting quietly at home alone and not talking to anybody or on Facebook groups and they're lurking in the background, just kind of watching the stories Uh roll through. And they're on Instagram, watching the adoptee voices, hashtags and things fly through and seeing what people are saying, but they don't necessarily feel like they have a compelling story to tell or that they are sort of, for lack of better words, traumatized enough to step forward and tell some dramatic story. But the truth is they're all unique stories. As I've said, if I switch places with you and your family, we would both still have an incredibly wild story to tell about adoption. 
because the simple yeah. fact is, and I think a lot of, for lack of better words, lay people who are not adoptees, non-adoptees don't understand is adoption starts with a child going from the family it was born into, into a completely different family. That piece right there yeah. sets an individual's life on a trajectory that is completely unpredictable. And, and it's hard for people who are non-adoptees to fathom because they grew up in their family. They look like their mom and dad. They look mm-hmm. like their brother. They have mannerisms and shared interests. And, you know, they grew up in the same house. There was never a transition. There's baby pictures of them as an infant in the hospital versus many adoptees like myself, who my first picture is of me sitting up at about six months old. So, you know, there's there's all of these gaps that it's hard for a non-adoptee to grasp because the traditional reality is you're born into your family, you're raised with that family, and you grow up and you go out into your life from that family. So it's a there's a lot to unpack there. And 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 so I guess my point in saying all of that is when an individual is adopted, they don't necessarily know who else is adopted that they can talk to about their experience. That's right. right? If I talked to you on the street, yeah. I wouldn't know that you were adopted. No. You know, you're just two beautiful ladies to me. And I would just, you know, say hi, keep moving. <laughs> and I would say, you know, and, and if I passed another black man on the street, you know, I would say, what's up and keep it moving. You know what I mean? And I would never necessarily know that you and he or are, are adoptees too. And so there's this narrative and, and desire for connection that goes untapped. But boy, when you find someone who's adopted, you're right away. It's a connection. It's Sarah, Sarah and I instantly, the minute we went out and we had a longer conversation than just dropping our kids at school or picking them up at the playground, yeah, we went out to play pool and we both said, oh, I'm adopted. I'm adopted. Boom. Into the conversations. It's oh my like, gosh. there's things we know that you don't talk to other people about. That's right. No matter what level or what. Well, yeah. and I wanted to touch on something you were saying, Damon, about non-adoptees and you know there's also this expectation that non-adopted people have that well you're lucky that you Mm -hmm. were adopted you were you know it must have been a terrible situation so you're lucky you know that that uh with no and there's why would there be any understanding because it's not really out in the open but yeah 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 that's right and you know the ignorance of the non-adopted person can lead to some challenging commentary that comes towards the adoptee yeah. and it's accidental. They don't, they don't mean it. It right. is. It's, Boy, we've had our share of comments over the years. Yeah. <laughs> both of us. Yeah. I'm sure. I, I recently, like I, not recently years ago, I, I had, but I it was remind, reminded of it recently. I had a date and told the guy I was adopting. He's like, well, that's unusual. <laughs> you know, just. <laughs> There's and so, so many. is your response, buddy. But thank yeah. you. <laughs> what is There's, it like 1850 but okay um yeah wow yeah it's it's a it is definitely a community and this is part of why we wanted to ask you about your story like we like to hear your adoption yes, story because we yes. know about your podcast in fact listening to your podcast i'm crying listen to your guests you know how you it's like Me too you're now on our on my podcast playlist but we'd love to hear about you like of tell course. us about you yeah well I think I'll f- follow the format of my own show and take you all the way back to the beginning. So <laughs> as I said before, I grew up in Columbia, Maryland, and it's a very sort of mostly middle-class mixed community as a planned community. And there was a lot of 
sort of interracial relationships and uh, mixed socioeconomic status. My family was middle class and, and both of my parents were black. My mom was somewhat light skinned and my father was darker skinned and I'm in the middle. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, we kind of look like we could have been family, you know what I yeah. mean? And so I was told that I was adopted at a very early age, such that I don't actually remember the telling. I just kind of always knew it. And my mom sort of supported the conversation as, as best as she could. And she was good at it because I, I wasn't deeply, you know, sort of concerned about the fact that there was another mother out there. I'm calling her mom. She's mom. There was no reason for me as a young man to be thinking about this other mother. That's just not, it wasn't how my personality goes. Mm -hmm. But some people, when they, they learn that, they, it sets them off on a new trajectory of like, holy mackerel, there's a whole other world out there that I'm <laughs> biologically related to. That never happened for me. And even in my teenage years, it never happened for me either. I was always pretty comfortable in my adoption. And I spoke about it openly with people. And, mm -hmm. and one of my very first guests on my show, Andre, told me that he was always uncomfortable speaking about his adoption because he tells the story of a young man basically being bullied on the playground over his adoption. And when he saw that, he was like, my lips are sealed. And so when he and I met in high school, you know, I was the first person who was sort of speaking openly about being adopted. And he was like, wait a minute, this isn't like, there's a new world of, you know, discussing this and being comfortable with it. And, and uh, you know, he's my brother from another mother and, and I love that guy. So, <laughs> mm. you know, we, we've really bonded much the same way that you, Louise and Sarah have done. Uh, I bonded with him as well. And so, I grew up perfectly comfortable in in my adoption, to be frank, and and there was no real sort of initial trauma for me. What ended up happening though was I got married. You know, I went off to college, went off to grad school, ended up getting jobs, and and sort of growing into adulthood, and and never really thought about my adoption. I got married, and my wife and I decided that based on the needs of our extended family. It was going to be better for her, her and I to adopt my niece and nephew on her side of the family. So unfortunately, my wife's brother took his own life and mm. he that left his children in the care of the rest of the family. And unfortunately, they just the structure of the family at the time just did not lend itself to them having the best possible opportunity. And so we as a family discussed it and we decided that my wife, Michelle, and I, as newlyweds, would take on my niece. She was nine years old at the time. And so we were married in May, and my niece was living with us by December of that year. Wow. So wow. it was a very, very early entry into both having right. a child in the home and adopting a child at the earliest point of our, our marriage. She is, my niece is, uh, had a younger brother who was still in the Caribbean and living in other places. And we decided that it was best to keep a sibling set together. There was no reason to have them out and about and separate. So we brought him in two years later to our home when he was nine. So she was 11. He was nine. We now had two children in our house and our own desire to have our own, our own son. So fast forward quite a bit. We struggled with our pregnancy for a while and we did a lot of sort of behind their backs in vitro uh, work. And uh, unfortunately, we, were, we didn't have any success. But uh, my wife and I conceived our son, Seth, naturally. And wow. so my son is this 
first biological relative that I've ever known. Mm. He's conceived naturally after an intense couple of years of IVF therapies and all kinds of other stuff. So he's this super special person that comes into my life. And I was intensely focused on him. And, but what ended up happening was one day I had been laid off from work and I was at home alone with him. And I'm looking down at this little guy and he's kicking his feet and he's waving his hands and he's looking up at me. And I'm just, I totally enamored with this person (laughs) that I've created out of love. And it just, I might just lost it. I was like, I can't believe this is the first blood relative I've I've ever known. Yeah. I'm like 36 years old yeah. and I've never known anybody else that I was related to. And it blew my mind. And it was in that moment with a couple of other things that happened that I started to have this inkling of wanting to search for my, for my biological family. The two other things that happened, I'll tell you quickly, are my father-in-law came to town from the Caribbean and he had a relative in Baltimore, Maryland. And we went to visit with this woman and she invites us into her home. She's elderly. She's dragging an oxygen tank behind her with the hoses, you know, draped over her ears and into her nose. And she sits down and she pulls out all of these artifacts from the family's history. And she's passing around photos and passing around, you know, newspaper articles and all these artifacts. And we're starting to recognize like that this is the family historian. And it becomes very clear to me that there's a family historian out in my biological family somewhere. Yeah. There's a griot, a storyteller, a, a person who knows the history that is out there that is probably elderly like this woman. And I'm at risk of never knowing her. Mm. And so that was another moment of real realization where I said, you know, I have to go and find my biological family. This is important because there are stories out there that need to be told and everybody else in the family knows them but me. So that was another pivotal moment for me. And then finally, the last thing that happened was I started to notice some serious mental deterioration in my adopted mother. We had always had a really good relationship and it started to turn really sour. And she was accusing me of things I wasn't doing. She was accusing people at work of, you know, these injustices to their friendship, all of these things. And, and, you know, the thing I said in my book about mental illness is it doesn't just show up with a sign that says, here's the new era. Right. It comes around the corner Gradually. sort of slowly and creeps around and it looks to see if you're looking and, and it doesn't hold up a sign at all. There's no sign on the side of the road that says, watch out. There's a curvy road ahead with falling rocks and slippery roads. It's just, it sneaks in in the middle of the night and you don't really realize it. And partially because you don't want to realize it. The woman who raised me was turning into a different person and I wanted the first person. And so I was resistant to thinking to myself that something was really wrong with my mom. So at any rate, she unfortunately started to suffer mental illness and we just had a real break in our relationship. It was, it got to the point where we couldn't really communicate very well between each other. And so I just, you know, I took a break and made some space. I stopped calling her and as much and kept short and sweet and, And what ended up happening was one of my really good friends, Kelly, sort of saw me going through this process of dealing with my mother's mental illness. And she said, you know, maybe you should look for your biological mother. And I was like, nah, I've, you know, I've got two parents. I don't need to find a third. Yeah, that was me. You too? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you, you feel where I'm coming from. Like you just, yeah, what am I going to do with a third parent? You know? (laughs) So I, I decided that I would 
follow her wisdom. And I went for it. And, and, uh, and I'm thankful that I did. So I ended up reaching out to Baltimore City Social Services, where my adopted mother had always told me I was uh, raised, born in Baltimore. So I was thankful for that knowledge. But what I was scared about was the fact that with her mental deterioration, that I would not necessarily get her support that she had always pledged for me to search for my biological parents. She always Mm -hmm. told me, if you ever want to search, I'll help you. No problem. But now this other person is sort of come forth in her body and her personality had changed and we were combative with each other in a way that we had never been before. And I just wasn't sure she was going to help me at all. But fortunately, one day I called her and asked her, you know, told her I thought about searching and she sent me all of the documentation that she had. And I was astonished and so thankful. I will always be thankful for that. So it was uh, it was a real powerful thing to know that the commitment she had made to me when she was of right mind held on when mm. she was no longer sort of where she was slipping away from me. And it was, it just really meant a lot that she was able to sort of keep that promise to me because without that information, I think I probably would not have been able to find my biological mother quite as easily as I did. Cause the information clearly said Baltimore city social services mm-hmm. in the absence of that lead, what organization to go to, I could have been anywhere. I could have been reaching out to Catholic charities and reaching out to this and that, and that could have been all over the place. So that was a a very powerful lead that helped me sort of go along my way. Let me stop for a moment and just see if I've got, if you've got any questions, because I know there's a lot of adoptee issues in what I've to say. Oh yeah. I I have one question. You had said that you were going along your life. You never really had any interest in, but, and that you had a happy childhood. However, did you ever feel anything like a hole inside that there was something missing? I'll be honest with you. I didn't. I'm very lucky. And some adoptees will say that. I never felt anything. And I'm one of those people. I was very lucky. As I said, I think the homogeneity of my family, the fact that we looked like we could have been family Mm -hmm. made it really comfortable. And I'll tell you a couple other little fun facts too. My birthday is October 14th. My dad's birthday was October 17th. And my mom's birthday was October 8th. So we were all Libras right there in the same little, you know what I'm saying? So there was all these little fun things that sort of kept us bound together. And and my dad and my personality are similar. And he's very, he was very outgoing, very gregarious. And, and I love to be around people. I love to hear people's stories. It's part of why I love doing the podcast, because if we were at a cocktail party and I found out that you were adopted, we would be there for the rest of the night. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. That's how I'm the same. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, but even so, even if it wasn't about adoption, if I found out you were a pilot, I would be like, that's so cool. How did you get into that? How much time? Right. You Where do you go? Can I go for a flight? I mean, I would be interviewing you for an hour. That's how I am too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so at any rate, there, there were just so many similarities between our personalities that I was comfortable and I just, I never felt the gaping hole. Now, what I will say is I didn't feel it, but it was there because in reunion, I could not believe how connected I felt, Mm. how thankful I felt. And it was something that I just, I didn't, I had not done the calculus of what it meant to find this person from whose body I came Mm. into this world. I would not be here 
were it not for that woman. And now I've found her after not knowing her for my entire life. That was incredibly powerful. And again, it was not that I felt a hole. It was that it was there and I didn't know it. And I think a lot of adoptees have that, have a similar thing, whether they can identify it or not. I had, I had a similar, I had very little interest in looking and was very comfortable being adopted and very happy growing up and never really even looked. My biological family found me, but my biological mom had passed away. Wow. And I was always sad about that because Sarah was given the opportunity to meet her biological mom before she died. And I would have loved to now that I know more. Sure. And, and I had the same experience and Sarah did too, as when you had your son, we both had that, like, that was really my big switch for me was looking down at him in the hospital going, Oh my God, yeah. we're related. Like mm-hmm. we have the yeah. same bone structure. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'd never had that. I, I, I blended very well with my family as well. Everybody would say, Oh, you look like your mother and everything. And we didn't, but it was really, but we blended yeah. enough. I too. got that a lot too. Yeah. yeah. It was very nice, but, but there is that now that I, I'm at this age and what I found out, there is that thing I'm finding like, wow, there was such a thing for me yeah, that, that you didn't know. And I like yeah. how you put that actually. And I, I would imagine too, you know, I w- as, as I said, I was so thankful for the birth of my son. I can't even put it mm. into words, but I didn't carry him for nine months. Oh, right. Can it's you? got no. to be something special for an adopted woman to give birth to her son or daughter. Because, I mean, you can't help but think someone did this for me and I don't know them. That's a huge, Sarah and I talked about this, like when we had our, our boys where you were like, first of all, like, holy cow, because you've carried this baby and now he's yours. And then you're like, wow, somebody did this for me, gave me life and gave me up for a better situation than they had. That strength is unreal, really. And yeah. the pain, and, and then you start to really go the pain, because I never really thought about Linda was my biological mom's name. I never thought about her pain that she mm-hmm. must have gone through. I always just thought, oh, she, you know, you always worry about yourself sort of until that flip. And you're like, wow, what, what does she live with after yeah. that? How well, I know part? for, I know for my biological mother, cause she did not want to give me up her, mm. her parents her mother forced her, her. She too was adopted, by the way. So that's a. Oh, wow. And I know it was traumatic. She did not want to give me up. So sometimes I've wondered, like, has that had some, you know, unspoken effect on me that I don't really know about? But I, I don't, you haven't heard my story, Damon, but my adoptive parents got divorced and then my adoptive mother left. So I was raised by my father. And wow. I mean, she's in my life. But so when we're talking about that feeling, Sometimes I'm still confused, even now mm-hmm. with everything I know, if it's very jumbled together, you know, all those abandonments. Yeah. I mean, and you two are perfect examples of the differences and complexities of adoption. Just in the two little pieces of yeah. your story, which I know we are very that. much more yeah. complex than what you've expressed. Yes. <laughs> but just in this moment. You well, the three of us, it's like, a, yes, it's yeah, like it's each, that's, each story is so different and rich, but it affects so many different people. And yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, and how, yeah, tell, we want to hear about you meeting your yes. biological mom. <laughs> so, the search was unbelievably quick. I was so fortunate. I can't even tell you. And there are many adoptees who will say the same thing. It just happened so fast. I was this pre it. like Ancestry and 23andMe? No, actually, they, they were 
they were coincident. And I'll share a little bit about how they were parallel things that happened at the same time because social services was part of my initial search for my biological mother, but DNA played a critical role in finding my biological father. So starting with my biological mother, her name is Anne. I didn't know that, but I'm just telling you now for familiarity. Mm. So uh, I went to social services and I said, I wanted to search. They said, great, here's the forms. We would like you to write an introductory letter about yourself to your biological mother. Don't go into the trauma yet. Just this is me. If you want to know me, I'm here and let's explore going forward. So I went to, I went to work after that social services appointment and I sat there and I wrote this letter. I was, I often joke, I was working for the federal government. I didn't do any work that day. So to the taxpayers <laughs> out there, I'm sorry. I owe y'all a couple of dollars. <laughs> but I wrote this letter and I crafted it so carefully. And then as I read it on the screen, I printed it out and I hand wrote it so that when she received my letter, mm. she would get a handwritten copy of my own, my own feelings. And so I dropped it in the mail and I just sort of smacked my hands. I was like, I'm done. I didn't spend my life obsessing about this. I'm not going to start like freaking myself out about it right now. And about two weeks later, I get a call from my social worker. And I was like, why would she be calling me unless she had something important to say? And sure enough, she was like, we found her. And we, I've read her your letter. She is ecstatic. And wow. I said, well, you know, it was really cathartic for me to write an introductory letter. I would love to get one from her. So about another week or two later, I get another call from my social worker and uh, her name was Lee. And Lee called me and she said, I have your letter. I can either drop it in the mail to you or I can read it to you over the phone if you like. I was like, read it to me, but not right now. I am in the office. I will start bawling in front of everybody. I got to go outside and be alone. So I dropped everything, raced outside, sat on a park bench across the street from Department of Health and Human Services. And I just sat there as my my social worker, Lee, with her this sort of lovely, soft voice, read mm -hmm. me my biological mother's words for the first time. And it was just amazing. Her She told me she was so thankful for me reaching out and that she had always thought about me. And she went into her own sort of personal statistics, one of which was that she had gone to Hampton University, which is the same university that I had attended. So she and I went to the same college wow. at different times. She told me a little bit about uh, the fact that her birthday was September 24th, 23rd, and I was hearing her letter on September 22nd. And I mm -hmm. stopped my social worker. I was like, wait, are you telling me her birthday's tomorrow? And she was like, yeah, I guess I hadn't really thought about that. You're right. And so by the time Lee got through reading the entirety of Anne's letter, and let me just say, her letter starts off with, my name is Anne Sullivan. And just hearing her name for the first time was like this moment of identity oh, yeah. for a person that you have never known. All of a sudden, she goes from being out there to like right here, real, an identifiable name and somebody that you're probably going to meet. Yeah. And it was just, it was really impactful for those watching. I'm in the closet and I just grabbed my... <laughs> son's t-shirt to wipe my tears the fellow closet <laughs> podcaster with one of these so oh, I'm, I'm sitting there and too. I've got her name and I'm just like this is incredible and I'm feverishly like I've got all these important important work notes on my pad and, and nothing else became any more important than her name her birthday 
Lee gave me her phone number. And when we hung up the phone, she said, I'm going to give her your number. I'm going to give you her number. And I'm going to leave it up to you guys to figure out how to do the rest. And so it was right in that moment that I decided that I wanted to text her and know, let her know that I had heard her letter. So I sent her a note, 36 years, dot, dot, dot. And I sent it off. And I didn't hear anything back for a while, but I figured that was okay. What do you say to something like that, right? Yep. Been a long time. Like there's no appropriate text to return (laughs) to something like that. So I let it be what it was. And, and into the night, I was at home. My kids were out and I get this call and I missed the call because I'd stepped away from my phone. I come back. I had a missed call and I listened to the voicemail message and it was Ann and she was, <laughs> she sounded a lot like how I sound right now. Just, you know, her voice was crackling and she was emotional. And she said, you know, it's me. It's, this is Ann. I'm so glad you reached out. This is my number. Feel free to call me any time of the day or night. And so I called her right back. And and we talked for like 90 minutes straight. And it was the wow. easiest introductory conversation. I, I, I never could have guessed that it would have gone quite as easily as it did. And, and it was just an immediate rapport, rapport, an immediate connection. You know, I could feel her vibe through the phone and, and they matched you know, and we talked about ourselves and sort of how we try to be kind to people and how we view the world and, and where we've been in our lives. And, and it, it turned out that while I was living in Columbia, Maryland, she was living like 20 minutes away in Laurel, Maryland. And oh, wow. there was a time when I worked down at the main IRS building in uh, Greenbelt, Maryland, and she was living around the corner in Greenbelt. And as I've said, you know, she and I went to the same college. Like there were just all of these sort of parallel junctures in our lives that I found to be fascinating. But what I didn't expect her to say was I asked her what she was doing for a living. And she said she was a librarian. And I said, well, where do you work? And she, she said, I, I said, well, do you, she told me that she worked in downtown DC. I said, do you work for the library of Congress? And she said, no, I work for the federal aviation administration. I said, that's so interesting. I'm a federal employee too. I work at HHS. I said, you know, what, how, you live in Laurel, which is like 45 minutes outside of DC. Mm-hmm. How do you get downtown? That's a long commute. And she says, well, I get on the train and the train takes me into Union Station and I get on the Metro and I get off at L'Enfant Plaza. And I said, shut up. I get off at L'Enfant Plaza too. Come on. And so <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was really astonished. And so knowing already that her birthday was the next day, knowing that her her work location was at the same Metro stop that I go to. I said, there's no way I'm not going to meet this woman tomorrow. And so I went upstairs and I told my wife, Michelle, what had happened and how the conversation had gone. And I said, I'm going to surprise her at her work, her office tomorrow. And she said, are you sure that's a good idea? And I was like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I am. I'm absolutely positive. And darn if it wasn't, I went to work the next day. I spent the morning working. I was surprisingly sort of coherent in doing my job. (laughs) Coincidentally, I was with a a group of uh, health information technology professionals from the state of Michigan, which can play into my story if I get to it later. But um, I was incredibly sort of tuned into what they were saying. And then at lunchtime, they started serving. And I was like, I'm going to see you guys later. And I split. (laughs) 
I jumped in a cab. I rode back close to my office. I got out of the at the FAA. And as I stood there in the cab, I was like, there's Lafon Plaza. That's her building. Mm. And my building's right over there. This is crazy. It's too crazy. It was really unbelievable. So I cleared federal security and the woman asked me who I was there to see. And I said, I'm here to see Ann Sullivan. And she said, what's her number? And I was like, I don't know. I've never met her before. And I, I knew what I was there for. So to me, hearing myself say that, I was like, oh, that totally sounded weird. You're talking to a federal guard. She's going to, you know. <laughs> so I said, you should probably fix that, smooth it over. I said, it might interest you to know that she's my birth mother and I'm meeting her for the first time today. <laughs> and the guard who, you know, normally has this rote task of passing people through this turnstile stopped, looked up at me and was like, you could see the, oh my gosh, on her face. She looks Ann up in the directory. She calls her. She says, there's a Mr. Davis here to see you. And then the guard goes, oh, and she hangs up the phone. <laughs> and I said, why did you gasp? And the guard said, because she gasped. And that was when I knew it was really real. Mm, so my goodness. Wow. I got on the elevator. The guard told me, go over to that elevator, go down to this floor get off turn right. And she's her office is at the end of the hallway. Cool. I had gotten myself dressed that morning. I put on a suit and tie and I made sure to pull everything as tight as I could. As I stood in that elevator, I wanted to look as clean as possible when I got off. So I'm looking at my reflection in the elevator door and my floor comes and bing and the doors open. And this woman is standing there looking at me. And I was like, Oh my God, that has to be her. So the piece that I've left out is in my introductory letter, I sent a picture of myself and my son, myself and my wife. So she knew who she was looking for. Mm -hmm. So when that door opened, those pictures came to life. I didn't know who I was looking for, but the look on her face when she looked at me and the fact that my face was on her, (laughs) it was crazy. And so I, I dove on her biggest hug. I cried like I'm crying now even more. And I just, I wept and I, I whispered in her ear, happy birthday. And she was like, this is the best birthday I've ever had. And and we went out to lunch and we just had an amazing time. I wish I could tell you, I, I remember the whole conversation. I don't remember a single word, No, Um, but it was just an amazing moment of closure, you know, and starting something new that, as I've said, I didn't know that I needed and uh, and we had a wonderful relationship. It was really, really amazing. She was she was a really special person. Unfortunately, we knew each other for six years, and it was great the entire time. But she, after she retired from federal service, moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And unfortunately, a few short months later, she was gone. She died oh, at oh. her home. She had never owned a home before. She bought her first home no. when she retired in Santa Fe. And she died in that home a few short months after retiring and moving there. So... That's um, where my birth mother died, Santa Fe. Is that right? Oh, that's yeah, crazy. That is true. Yeah, she. Wow. I went to see her right before she died, two thousand nine. She'd lived there for many years. Oh, is that right? Wow, mm-hmm. I love it out there. It's great. I ended up keeping her house. So, wow. Oh, Damon, that's very special. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> Sarah and I are like oh. both of us crying. Did, <laughs> did, did she have any other kids? No, she never had any other kids, and. She had me via C-section in the 70s. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, 
we all do it. You go, you get in the shower and you look at your body and you go, "Ah, I need to work out. I need to do this. I should stop eating donuts, whatever. But every time she got undressed, there was a marker for my life. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Mm. And what were the circumstances that she put you up for adoption? So thankfully in that first conversation, she told me, listen, I don't have any secrets. I'm open. Mm -hmm. And she said that she had been, and she told me more of her story as we, as our reunion continued. (laughs) What she told me about her circumstances were that she had gone away to graduate school and that she started to date a police officer. And they dated for a little while. He was not nice to her and they broke up. And so after they broke up, a while later, she realized she was pregnant. And so she calls the police precinct to try to get in touch with him. And the person who answered the phone, you know, asked who she wanted to speak to. And she said she wanted to speak to this guy. And the person who on the other end of the phone said, oh, is this his wife calling? I knew it. (laughs) And she was like, oh, crap. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine the heart sinking feeling Mm -hmm. that you have of knowing that you're pregnant out of an affair and this person that you were with was unkind to you to the point that you broke up. So like, it's not like you're going to be together at all. Mm. And so she knew she was in, in a real, in real trouble. And so she had a lifelong friend who she grew up with on the Eastern shore of Maryland. And her name is Shelly. And she called Shelly and said, listen, girl, I'm in trouble. And interestingly, Shelly had just taken a job as a social worker in Baltimore city. So she said, Finish your classes, get out of there, come here. We will get you on welfare. We will get you, get the child adopted. And like, we will smooth this whole thing over as it were, you know? Mm -hmm. So girlfriend helping girlfriend, that's what Ann did. She flew from Detroit back to uh, Baltimore. She was in a, you know, small apartment. She was on public assistance. They made an adoption plan. But interestingly, you know, Ann had tried to keep the secret of her adoption. And for those that know, Baltimore's her Eastern Shore. Yeah. What's that? Oh, she tried to keep the adoption secret. Excuse me, her pregnancy. Pregnancy. Okay, yeah, she tried to keep her pregnancy a secret and therefore the adoption. And for those that know, the, the Eastern Shore of Maryland, it's not a long drive to get back into the mainland of Maryland. Into Baltimore. I spent my summers there growing up. Did you My really? dad's from Baltimore. My dad yeah. my, oh, uh, adopted that. <laughs> so weird. I'm like, I know it well. So you can imagine then Anne was kind of freaking out a little bit because she's not so far from home that she can't be discovered. And sure enough, my biological mother, which I didn't realize until very, very late, was a fiery redhead. And so there's (laughs) this pregnant, fiery redhead walking down the street in Baltimore one day and she hears her name on the street. Oh, gosh. And it was a guy that she knew from back on the Eastern shore. And he was like, I know that's you. And she like hustled her little pregnant body back to her apartment and raced up the steps and closed the door and tried to hide. But of course the guy was like, he went back to the Eastern shore and he told his mom, you know, I think I just saw Ann in Baltimore and she's pregnant. Oh, and of God. course his mom yeah. told her mom. Of course. Oh. And her Especially mom the Eastern shore. It's like about, small town America. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> so her, her secret was out and she didn't know it was out. Until much later when she saw that guy another time and, and he told her that he had seen her. And her Anne's own mother never revealed to her that wow. she knew she had been pregnant. Okay, that's crazy. But she did. She was known to have said to someone someone else, you know, I guess I have a grandchild out there somewhere. 
So it's, you know, these are the family stories yes. that you don't get to hear unless you attempt reunion, right? You don't know no. the the reality. And I'll be and honest. If, with have, you. have you found them? Have, have you met? Anne's? I have. Yeah. Oh, okay. One of my, one of my uh, cousins on my maternal side lives in Baltimore. So, Anne, my biological mother had one sister, Addie. Mm-hmm. Addie had one daughter, Mary Ann. And so we were both single children of our mothers and, uh, and my mm-hmm. cousin and I, you know, we talk as many times as we can and she's lovely, love hanging out with her and her family. And it's just been amazing because I, yeah. I grew up kind of an only child. I was an only child in adoption. I was an only child on my biological mother's side. I later learned I was an only child on my biological father's side. So I'm an, I'm one of a kind. Wow. And <laughs> Even he didn't. Well, now we want to hear yes, how you that, found I him because yeah. all these questions about the cop. That oh yeah, yeah. Nice, so, the married so, cop. I was like, can we hear about the cop next? Yeah, <laughs> I know. So let me let me just finish out that piece of the story because yeah, it is course. kind of interesting. So what ended up happening was <laughs> Anne fled. I was born in Baltimore. She fled Detroit. I was born in Baltimore. Placed into adoption. Adopted by my parents, and I lived in Columbia. And then my my biological mother, Anne, sort of lived in the Baltimore area for quite a while. Then she got married to an Air Force guy, moved overseas, had a bad relationship, divorced, came back to Baltimore where her sister Addie was. And she just kind of lived in the vicinity there. But she never changed her maiden name. She wanted to be found. So she always made it, for lack of better words, easy to be located. Mm-hmm. So she never said word one anything further to the cop that was, you know, done. And uh, she also made a point never to travel through Detroit. She said, I just never wanted to revisit that trauma. She said, even if I had to go somewhere and there was a connecting flight in Detroit, I would not take it. (laughs) So I ended up, like I said, we had a wonderful relationship. Unfortunately, she passed away, but I sensed in her voice when she talked about my biological father that there was pain there. And so I never pursued this guy whom she named. I just kind of filed it away in the back of my head. But when she passed away, I said, you know what? There's, I can't hurt her feelings by seeking right. this guy. And it takes two to tango and I wouldn't be here without him. So right. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, I don't want to leave this life without having sought out this person. So to cut a piece of the story short, I found this guy. And we got on the phone and no report whatsoever. Oh, I mean, none. just, huh. he was just this boisterous, overbearing, you know, commanding person. Like he just didn't, our vibe didn't match at all. And I, and I have to say, I went into this piece of my reunion with the knowledge that it was probably not going to get any better than the amazing surprise right. reunion that I had already had. I knew we were on a downhill trajectory from there. <laughs> so I went into it with that knowledge and I got what I expected. And so I let that relationship die quite a bit. But then it just, it ate away at me. I was like, you know, this dude is old. He's not going to be here forever. There's, you will, Damon, go your whole life without meeting the man who is responsible for you being here. You might just have to suck it up and go meet this guy. And so I started to resolve myself to doing so. And what ended up happening was he sort of questioned paternity. He said, are you sure I'm the guy? And I was like, well, mm. I kind of know how these things work. And if she said you were there, like, I can't argue with that. And so he's, he, but he did call into question whether he was the guy. And, and one day after that conversation, I was at home, I got a letter in the mail 
from him. And it was, you know, some scripture, which I didn't know how to interpret. And I just kind of looked at it and thought to myself, I don't, I don't know what he's trying to tell me. And then, uh, my wife, Michelle was in the room and she said, let me see it. And so, you know, as I've said, being the smart woman that she was, she turned it over to the back where there was a handwritten note that basically apologetically said, I'm sorry, I'm not the guy. And he signed off. And I was oh. like, what the hell? I, how do you know? And, and mm-hmm. you know, screw you for not wanting to know me. I'm a pretty good person and you should want to know me. And I, I felt more about it in that moment than I was willing to admit at the time. I'll be honest with you. But then I just resolved myself to not knowing my biological father. I was like, I, it's impossible for me to know who else uh, could be a candidate. And I have no idea how to do this. And, and I had not thought about DNA testing at all. It had not crossed my mind. But interestingly, while I was working at HHS, I had the opportunity to go out to Silicon Valley. I sat in a meeting with Ann Wojcicki, who's the CEO of 23andMe, and she handed me a DNA kit. And when I was alive, I took it back and I was like, we're doing 23andMe. This is awesome. (laughs) So she and I did 23andMe and my results were interesting in that it revealed my, you know, sort of genetic history, global history, you know, where Mm -hmm. where I'm from to, to the extent that it could. So then later, we're doing ancestry DNA because my mother-in-law is an adoptee also, which meant we didn't know anything about her heritage, nor my wife's heritage, nor a piece of my son. So we're all doing ancestry DNA to try to figure things out. And I was like semi-interested because I had already had the sort of aha moment of discovering who I am by my 23andMe experience. But what ended up happening is I'm sitting at my laptop one night in bed and I'm reading through our family, my wife, Michelle, my son, Seth, and myself, our DNA. And I saw some interesting things in theirs. And I said, let me go look at mine. That's It's fascinating how Ancestry does this differently than 23andMe. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, I'm looking at my relationships, which I had not paid attention to at all. And I see two immediate relationships like first level, what first generation relationships. And I'm thinking, well, of course, Seth is one of them. So who is this other person? And I click on it and the initials are WW. And those are not the initials of the man that Anne gave me as my biological father. And it clearly reads WW is your father. Oh. And I read that line must be eight times. And I said it out loud and I showed my wife to make sure I wasn't crazy. I mean, I was in shock for having made this biological connection online. To cut the story a little bit, I ended up reaching out through the Ancestry platform to the people who were administering his account. And it turned out it was not him. He was part of a much larger network of people who had been doing DNA testing. So there was this white family in Kentucky who had been doing DNA and their DNA started to branch out into the black community. And so they started reaching out to people to learn more about like, who are all these people in the family? And they were trying to figure out like, where do we connect at the, at the pinnacle where in it, you know, somewhere in slavery, there was a crossing of the the family lines and they were trying to find that out. And my biological father was part of that slave lineage in Kentucky. So he was part of the discussions and the connections that this family had made in Kentucky. And speaking with them, I asked them if they would allow me, if they would, you know, facilitate a connection between him and I. And so I wrote him a letter. It was very different than the one that I had written to Anne because Anne knew I was coming. This guy had no clue because (laughs) Anne thought it was the cop, not this unsuspecting guy. 
So I wrote him a very different letter and I introduced the whole situation. And I said, and basically that's how I found you. So if you want to know me, I'm here (laughs) and let's do this. If not, I understand this is a lot. And uh, he called me and we had a phenomenal conversation. He listened very intently. He's a, a cerebral, intelligent guy who takes in a lot of information and sort of mulls it over and and is very thoughtful. And he sat silently listening to the entirety of the story on the phone. And at one point I was like, hello, you still yeah. there? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I'm just taking it all in. And he was, I want to say 86 at the time that I found him. So, you know, you talk about he's in the autumn of his years. Oh yeah. And this son comes out of nowhere. And I'm so thankful that he was a lot more receptive than the other guy had been. He was very welcoming. And I like that the bad the cop is not your dad. What's yeah. That? <laughs> I'm yeah, happy the right? bad cop's not your dad. <laughs> I know. So lucky for that. Yeah. So coincidentally, we were we were flying to Los Angeles the very next day as a family. My mother-in-law lives here in Los Angeles. And we were flying out the next day. And during this conversation with my biological father, Bill, uh, he reveals that he lives in Las Vegas. And I was like, well, from Maryland, I'm going to be in your neighborhood. So you know, we're going to be there for a while. If you want to connect, we should, you know, we should make a plan. And so sure enough, we flew to Las Vegas for a day. He picked us up at the airport and, you know, I came down the escalator and I met him and he, it was so funny. He's kind of a character. And he, he, I said, are are you Bill? And he was sitting down, he leans over and he grabs his wallet and he looks at his ID and he says, looks like I am. (laughs) (laughs) He gave me this big, huge hug, squeezed me so tight. And it was just such a warm welcome, you know, from somebody who, you know, he didn't need to take a person in. You know what I mean? He didn't need to accept somebody that he didn't know was coming. But it's a it's a comment on his character that he did so. Oh, and he's probably so excited who you are and that you're his son. How, what, so, how did, did Anne forget him or? <laughs> I was wondering. So, yeah. You know, it's a funny thing. I've tried to mold this over myself. And and did, did he remember Anne? He did. Thank you. Okay. In a oh, much yeah. more positive light. That was one of the okay. things that angered me about the first guy was he actually said to me, I don't even remember your mother. Oh. And I was like, F you, dude. Like I'm coming to you from this place. <laughs> Of vulnerability and and the way he said it heaped my mother on top of a bun- a pile of other people that was just yeah a, the most incredibly insensitive thing that he could have said. Mm. But Bill was much more sort of appreciative of her as a woman, and he said, "Oh yeah, I remember her." You know, <laughs> he, he said, "I remember she was very pretty." And so what I've surmised is, you know, she was probably with the cop, and they broke up. And, you know, seeking some affection and having some fun with somebody else, Bill sure. was there. And it was, uh, I believe it was the Super Bowl probably that 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 year. And uh, Bill was a local guy at the graduate school. And so he lived in a home where most of the graduate students were from out of town. So they would travel from all over and go home at the holidays or for you know breaks. So he had a home they could go to and hang out. And so he had a Super Bowl party. And I believe that's probably where I was conceived. And that was just (laughs) in between the time that she was last with the cop and when she found out she was pregnant. And, you know, naturally, if she had been with the cop more times, she would think 
Yeah. yeah. It yeah, was probably she him. assumed. She you assumed know what I mean? Like, you yeah, just, of course. People just don't think a one night stand is going to turn into something that it often does. Oh boy, it does. It, that's the that's the logic that <laughs> I apply to this. You, yeah, you too, right? <laughs> so that's kind of that's where I think the whole thing unfolded. Yeah. Wow, what a story! This um, is amazing. <laughs> it's been crazy. And is 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 Bill still alive? Bill's still alive. Yeah. He's, I think, 88, going to be 89, I think, this year. That's great. And this is one of those things. This is one of those things where you wonder, like, do guys in my family die at 50? Like, do we all have heart attacks? (laughs) Yeah. Nope. Bill's still there kicking it at 80, 88, 89 years old. Enjoying the desert heat in in Vegas. (laughs) (laughs) That gives me hope. You know what I'm saying? Those are the that's, That's not sort of classic medical information when it, but in fact it is because oh, it, it is. says like yeah. you know you you have the likelihood of living a nice full life you know so I, I i'm really glad to have gone on this adventure it's been amazing i will admit i'm incredibly lucky more so than most and i don't take that for granted and i, and I try to listen with that empathetic ear on the podcast because yeah. i know that there's deep trauma out there mm-hmm. and it's not lost on me at all and so I, I feel incredibly grateful for one my experience but two the opportunity to yeah. and the and the trust that people put in me to share their stories from their own perspective and how they've dealt with things it's been it's been an incredible experience so the the podcast was born out of my own reunion experience to sort of close the loop there that well, is it, so we feel the same way about our ours and you know, and finding out that you're touching people that you don't even know, you know. That, I know. That, oh it's just Sarah and I text each other in the morning and we're like, this is really special. It's so enriching in our own lives yeah. that we get this feedback and yeah. um that we're helping people that we didn't know we were helping, or even just the conversation, just having yeah. people have the conversation. That's exactly right. I, I always marvel at two things the comments that come in which Mm -hmm. i love to read Mm. and the numbers my analytic platform for my podcast i'm on captivate fm and captivate allows me to see like this breakdown globally and i'm seeing numbers in you know asian countries in australia and i (laughs) i'm just blown away we've had that too we're like who's listening over there it's like yeah and i'm just but it means so much Mm -hmm. you know i had a guest who her story originated in the united states but she lives in italy and it was just so meaningful that we could make this long distance connection you know person to person about her story that did in fact span the globe i've had other guests who've you know, lived in California, traveled to Australia to try to locate their their biological relatives. And we really are a global community of adoptees. It's it's astonishing. And I'm so glad that many people are stepping forward to share more of their own journeys on social media, on podcasts, in YouTube videos. It's amazing. I love it. Yeah, it really is. We're just so glad to have you in our community now. I feel like we're, you're, you know, one of us in the closet. (laughs) In the closet. Yeah. I know, yeah. podcasters in the closet. Yeah, <laughs> that's a whole other community. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah, thank Damon, you so much for this invitation. You. This was really great. It, it always surprises me when, you know, yeah. when I get to tell the whole story, it's so emotional. I don't know. I usually When you're don't the guest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's fun to be the guest actually <laughs> yes. too. So I really appreciate you guys offering me an opportunity to share. 
Thank you oh, so much. This we'll, has we'll, been be, we'll be in touch for sure. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you, Damon. You, you guys take care. All the best. Bye-bye. You, you too. too. Bye-bye. Wow. Another great guest and so many relatable things that he said and profound. And Damon was just, I mean, he really kind of blew me away. We've been listening to his podcast, but then hearing him tell his story and how he didn't know he had that hole until he filled that hole by mean his biological mom and what that meant to him and that relationship he had with her and how beautiful that was. That was just amazing to me. I forgot to ask him about his adopted mom. Um, I might have to follow up <laughs> him on that because I'll be curious about it, what happened to her. But also I thought what was great was that we're all, you know, that that he ha- has the same goals with his podcast as we have with ours, and that you know, and really, it's just having a conversation, and and that adoption isn't going anywhere. But if we can make it this conversation bolder and louder and more relatable and understandable, maybe things can be different for the next generation. I guess is, I yeah, I think you're exactly right. That's the main thing out of this is like the three of us are doing podcasts, and yet. We're all wanting the same thing, the conversation, the stories out there. And it's so big for all of us to be in because there's so many stories untold and not heard. And we are part of a community. Like instantly, we're like, Damon's our community. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was wonderful. (sighs) Well, as usual, it was a great one, Louise. It sure was. Okay. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at the Making of Me podcast. And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me. Bye. See you next time.